You are listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. I do want to yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, we did a Q&A. It was good. want to see it again in IMAX before, at some point. Hopefully, maybe it'll... We'll maybe do a couple more. Yeah. You think it would ever, like, re-release or anything like that? Or Well, they are. we actually already did an IMAX re-release. Um, but every now and again, we can get them to play the IMAX prints on the old films. You know? Yeah. Seems like they could do a film, fe- like an IMAX film festival if they wanted to, just like... Well, if I keep making films, it'll be enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That should be good there for you. Yeah. If we can just get a level real fast. Uh, yeah, so I'll be talking about it like this. That's perfect. Yep. Perfecto. And also, I've got... All, all my contraptions are on. These are my <laughs> questions I'm just going to sit in front of me and a backup recorder. So we're covered on everything. Perfect. <laughs> Hopefully. What could possibly go Knock on wood. <clears throat> Well, I'm here today with the writer and director and producer of Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan, the Oscar-nominated director of Dunkirk, I should say. Uh, thank you for doing my show, sir. I really appreciate sure. it. Uh, let me start there, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll go ahead and speak for myself and I think a number of people that think that that particular recognition, best director from the Academy, has been a long time coming for you. So I just want to know, what, what did it feel like to finally get that particular slice of recognition from your peers? Well, I mean, it, it's terrific. I mean, the recognition of your peers is is the thing, and, and I've been fortunate in the past to have had you know DGA nominations, which obviously mm-hmm. always means a lot to me. But uh, to get an Oscar nomination, I mean, you know, I grew up watching the Oscars on TV, and and grew up with the idea of that as being you know the sort of ultimate mm-hmm. ultimate award in the in the filmmaking world. So it's it's really thrilling to be nominated. That actually brings a weird question. What was the first Oscar ceremony you remember watching? Oh, wow. Gosh. I mean, I certainly remember ones from the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, they were different then, certainly. <laughs> than the, the way they put on the show and whatnot. It's much Just, different TV it, product now. Somewhat, but I mean, there's still a great sense of occasion. And I think there's yeah. there's more than most things on TV or most things in society, there's, there's quite a continuity actually mm-hmm. with the, the history of movies. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's always fun when they you know, when they, they take that into account and they, they deal with the history of, of movies as they often do. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it maintains its status as such a, an honor for yeah. anybody involved with film is because there is this sense of the people who've come before you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations on the success there. Eight nominations. Thank you. Uh, I believe this is your best film, personally. I think it's a great culmination of everything that you've shown yourself capable of. Uh, I would love to start by talking about structure, mm-hmm. because that's certainly at the forefront when, it, when you think about this film. Uh, one of William Goldman's books, he was talking about like a remake of Grand Hotel he was going to work on. Mm-hmm. And before he sat down to write it, he kind of just sketched out, just with lines, representing each character like this character will come in here and we'll be done with the character there 
there's a bunch of characters and narrative threads. So we just wanted to kind of visually see what would the structure be like. Mm. And I was just curious if you did anything like that, any kind of a visual aid to mm. to kind of help you visualize the structure of Dunkirk. I mean, you don't have a ton of threads, but you've got three that are on different temporal planes. Yeah. So certainly there's complexity there. No, I, I do a lot of a lot of diagrams. Um, this film in particular, with with the different time scales that the the three timelines are running at, um, I needed to know how they would interact, how they would intersect, and. I think with every project, and this one in particular, I'm always struggling to find tools for visualization. Um, you know, it's sort of elusive. The, the screenplay format itself is pretty inadequate in a lot of ways for showing you what a finished film is going to be or allowing you to step outside the story as a creator and sort of see how the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the best best we've got uh, in terms of how you, you move forward and how you, you step onto the floor to make a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I enjoy that that format very much. But before I actually write a screenplay, I do tend to look at other methods, uh, various forms of notation, diagrams that explore the geometry of a story. I'm, I'm very interested in the geometry of stories mm-hmm. and, and the shape of them in different ways. Um as you say, how characters come in and out, you know, and all the rest, and, and how the uh, the various elements of the structure will guide the audience through a set of events. And with Dunkirk, it was the first time I was dealing with uh, a real-life event or set of events. And so all the research I was able to do before writing the screenplay, before figuring out how to tell the story, it gives you the world, it gives you all the big geographical movements that you're going to want to deal with. And... And so plotting the course through that became very much a question of point of view, very much a question of structure. And so those kind of diagrams and those kind of explorations of how would a screenplay fit together mm-hmm. actually assumed even more importance than, than they normally do with my, my work. Yeah. Well, which, you know, as you said, it's a very willful structure. It's not the kind of thing you just stumble on and editing so (laughs) due to that i feel like personally uh your work as a writer on this particular project has kind of gotten some short short shrift because this was meticulously calculated on the page ultimately well it 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 was i mean i I think the screenplay hasn't had short shrift in the sense that a lot of people have responded very well to the film and come to see the film and it's the screenplay that allows that to happen Mm -hmm. so in the in the larger scheme of things i think uh, it's been recognized and and it has paid off in, in ways that are very important. Um, the reality of how people tend to think of screenplays is, is something I've rubbed up against uh, different projects over the years because everybody tends to read screenplays the same way. They tend to just read the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I was a script reader for my first year when I when I moved to Hollywood. And I, like everybody else, tended to just read the dialogue. And you, you, get, you get sort of lazy in that regard. Um, the screenplays I've written have always depended as much on the stage directions as the dialogue and that's always been something of a source of frustration for me in in terms of showing people screenplays and trying to get them to to sort of visualize what the film could be Mm -hmm. i remember seeing um reading about um something that stanley kubrick had experimented with over years of of shifting uh, the layout of the screenplay format so that the dialogue would go wider and the stage mm-hmm. directions would be narrower, you know, different ways of, of getting people to look at it differently on the page. But I don't think he ever came up with anything that was better than the conventional screenplay format. Yeah. Um, and I think it is the best, it's the best tool we have, but 
you are reliant on on people really taking a bit of extra care and attention to really parse the the stage directions as well as the dialogue and yeah. Dunkirk that was that was very much the case because I was interested in telling a primarily visual story um, everything had to be scripted and, and written up very carefully but I didn't want to carry the ideas through through dialogue primarily. It reminds me of film school. I think that in film school they're kind of just teaching you how to write scripts that can sell essentially. So they're telling <laughs> you, you know, make sure there's a lot of white space, you know, <laughs> a lot of dialogue. Keep your 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 uh, action to like three lines, and then move to another graph. <laughs> just well, and you write different screenplays for the same film almost, depending on what stage you're at. And, yeah. and screenplays are written to sell sometimes, or they are written to attract actors mm-hmm. or you know, find their place in the marketplace. I'm very fortunate with the success I've had that I'm able to write the screenplays for me as a director. So I'm, I'm as a writer, sort of communicating to myself as a director. And so I can try and hone a very pure approach where you don't write anything in the screenplay that you don't know how to communicate mm-hmm. to an audience visually. Um, or cinematically, I should say, uh, and so I'm quite, you know, I could be quite disciplined about about those kind of things. And uh, I remember when I was starting out, I got very obsessive about you know not naming a character until somebody actually said the name in the, right. in the dialogue, um, which you know is probably taking things a bit far. But it it was a useful discipline in terms of always just trying to know only what the audience is going exactly. to know. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, I mentioned that it's, there's meticulous calculation in this script uh, you know, when action from the various threads are, threads are going to intersect and whatnot. I'm just curious if that's part of the fun of being a filmmaker for you is just this kind of precision tinkering. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sense of engineering about it. There's a lot of fun. Um, you're able to take advantage of the years that you have to plan and execute something that the audience will sit there for an hour and a half, two hours, uh, and and will flow over them in a, in a linear way. So you, you have a very uh, superior position to the audience members. You have a huge advantage, several huge advantages. And, you know, utilizing those to give the audience uh, an unexpected or a slightly challenging or surprising experience is part of the fun of it. It really is, I think, like putting on a, a magic show in a way. You mm-hmm. get to be the magician. You get to plan your illusions ahead of time. and then And then you get to lay them out and see the, the audience experience them in, in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, has always been... It, it's something I've been asked about a lot in terms of the number of layers that I try to put into the film or, or certain aspects of, of things that I try to get in there, where when you step back from it, you say, well, you should be doing those things and you should be able to do those things because I have years in which put a film together that you're going to have two hours to watch and so it really ought to be um, giving you more than you can take in immediately or, or that you can analyze in the immediate linear moment yeah uh, this is your leanest movie since following it kind of demanded that for what it is this ticking clock kind of thriller you know I, as I said to you at the governor's awards a few months ago I was going to lose my mind if your editor Lee Smith was not recognized this time around uh, I still can't understand looking at Inception and saying, ah, <laughs> no editing nomination there. But happily, you're both uh, in, in the mix this time around. But uh, yeah, as I said, it's your leanest movie. So I guess mm. that kind of was dictated from the start, right? Like this wasn't going to be something that got big. Yeah, I mean, certainly for the screenplay, from the screenplay point of view, I wanted to, I was determined to make it as short as possible. 
and as stripped down as possible because I knew that the imagery, the, the resources we were marshalling in terms of what we would put in front of the camera, it would need a certain rhythm. It would need time to breathe, mm-hmm. to tell the story visually. And so I didn't want to um, overburden the, the running time of the script. Um, but also everything we were doing, um, everything I was doing as a screenwriter and everything Lee was doing as an editor was about suspense and the language of suspense. And I'd written the screenplay and we edited the film in, according to this musical principle of the shepherd tone, which is a an audio illusion in in music whereby you create a piece of music that sounds like it's rising in pitch the whole time, mm-hmm. but it never actually goes out of range. And so it's it's a sort of corkscrew effect, if you right. like. And I'd used that in, in music and in sound effects before. And when I was writing the script, I thought, well, it'd be very interesting to try and apply those mathematical principles, those geometric principles, to the way in which I actually wrote the script. So by the time we'd filmed it, by the time we are in the edit suite, we have three storylines that are always continually peaking in terms of intensity or anxiety, one after the other. And that was aimed at creating a sort of tumbling forward quality to the narrative, a kind of snowballing effect. And it's the kind of thing that I've been doing in primarily in the third acts of my longer films. And it's a form of cinematic storytelling that I very much enjoy, but it's also one that can be exhausting for an audience and so I think Lee understood why I'd written a shorter script he understood why even though we had an amazing amount of really remarkable material the aerial unit the stuff on the the beach and on on the sea but we didn't want to exhaust the audience unnecessarily we didn't want to push it too far in a sense we wanted to, to pitch it just right and I think Lee showed an amazing amount of well, restraint, really, I suppose, in the sense of not, not pushing things too far, really trying to to find exactly the right balance between, you know, productive tension and exhaustion on the part of the audience. Yeah. Let's talk about Hoyt Van Hoytema. I've spoken to him a number of times over the years. I have a yeah. top 10 shots of the year column that he's like a mainstay on at this point. <laughs> uh, your previous DP was Wally Fister. He moved on to be a director himself. Mm-hmm. Um but you're obviously someone who sticks with your cinematographer. So whenever you uh, went out looking for someone on Interstellar, what was it about Hoyta that clicked? Why is it? Why is this the guy? Well, a lot of a lot of your choices about um, who to work with are very instinctive. They're about getting in the room with somebody and seeing if there's a creative spark between you. Um, Hoyta, you know, I'd seen the the work he'd done on other films, uh, let the right one in in particular, made quite an impression on me. Um, but really it was about a meeting the minds creatively just in, in talking about cinematography and, and his approach to it and what I, what I wanted in terms of the photography on interstellar. Um, cause it, it's more than that relationship is about more than just lighting or camera work. It's about storytelling and you have to find somebody who, uh, will really be, pulling in the same direction as you in terms of how to tell that story and what the role of the photography will be in it. And and so one of the the more interesting things I think about what Hoyter did in Dunkirk, which is deceptively simple, is is he didn't ever want to discuss the look of the film. He didn't ever want to talk about it as any kind of stylization. He had the confidence to let it emerge from the material and what we were actually going to stage and let that define the look. Which I think for for myself as a director, 
I have a lot of experience with large-scale films. Um, you know, I, for me, that wasn't maybe such a leap, but for, the, for a cinematographer to sort of say, we're going to put thousands of people on the beach, we're going to get these airplanes, we're going to get these boats, and then we're going to see how that informs the creative process of the photography. Um, so all of our conversations in pre-production, rather than being aesthetic, they were technical. It was okay. This is the format we're shooting. This is the type of lens we need. This is how we're going to move the camera around. Um, and I think that one of the things that I'm happiest about with Hoyt's work on the film is the sincerity and the naturalness of the way in which he, he achieved these remarkable images. Mm-hmm. They're from the heart. I mean, they're just somebody with a brilliant eye watching what's going on in, in front of us and. and finding a way to capture that. So there's no imposed style on on the photography in the film. Uh, and in the case of IMAX photography, is what Hoyt has done with the IMAX format in, in this film is really unique and, and groundbreaking, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think it's the best use of the format you've had so far. I mean, certainly I, I saw one of the early screenings at the Universal City Walk. Yeah. And I felt like I was just falling into the screen from the opening frame. Well, know? we had a, had a bit of practice by this yeah. time. We've been doing it for 10 years, and... Hoyter on Interstellar finally broke that barrier that we hadn't been able to of, of how to handhold the camera, mm. uh, basically by just picking it up and toughing it out. Yeah. But um, he he was able then suddenly to give me access to the IMAX format as a spontaneous format, as an intimate format. And so coming to Dunkirk, where my aspiration for the film was an intimate epic, he is then able to put that lens right where a 35mm or a GoPro would be, you know, and, and really give you that that intimacy with the characters. But on this incredible format that is so... It's transparent, in a sense. It's not stylized. It doesn't have its own look. It just lets the screen disappear and immerses the audience in, in the action. Uh, and so I think Hoyter really trusted the format and trusted his eye to just be there, follow the characters through and, and find the um, the look of the thing that way rather than imposing a, a style on it. And I think I think it's it's remarkable work. That that answers my next question, which was you know, I was curious if you guys pulled any references, if you looked at photography or any artwork, but uh, obviously not. But in general, no. was that just for this movie or is that something that you're typically interested in coming into pre production on I think it depends on the on the project. Um, I've often done films where in the case of Inception, you know, working with Wally, with different storylines that intersect or interact, you know, there is perhaps a temptation to say, well, we could do, you know, this one, this particular color or this process or put this look to it. Um, I've always sort of come down on the side of naturalism, and that's why I work so well with Wally Fister. It's why I think I work so well with Hoyte van Hoytman. They're, they're naturalistic uh, photographers. They sort of trust the material in front of them in a way, and so you trust that the reality or the physical differences of the different timelines will start to naturally achieve some kind of a look. And I've always tried to shoot on the highest quality format, the most transparent medium possible, so that you are really just giving the audience access to the look and feel of the world that that you want them to to respond to, the, the tactile quality of it. You want people to watch Dunkirk in such a way that they, they know what everything would smell like. Mm-hmm. You know, that that kind of tactility, that, that's very important. Yeah. 
Did you leave any cameras, any IMAX cameras at the bottom of the English Channel? <laughs> Temporarily. <laughs> we, we fished them out again. You know, we did, we, there is a shot in the film where we, uh, when we crash-landed a Spitfire with a, uh, an IMAX camera mounted in a barrel on, on the side, and the thing sunk much more quickly than we expected. And the uh, housing for the camera, which we put together... A bit ad hoc. Um, it fractured, and and the entire camera was submerged in seawater for hours before we could actually get it get it back up. Um, but we sent the film to the lab in Los Angeles, kept it moist in the cans. You know, we called them up and said, "What do we do?" And they told us to, you know, put some damp rags in there with it in the, in the cans. We sent the film. They uh, processed it, cleaned it, and processed it, and, and the shot was in the film. It came out absolutely perfectly, which amazing. you can't do. You can't do that with a digital camera. <laughs> Probably couldn't have planned that either. If you, if that's what you want it set out to do, no. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I just saw this featurette actually, uh, this half-hour thing they put together that mm. shows all of these like IMAX cameras bolted onto Spitfires, and it just looked like a lot of fun. It know? was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was like a lot of things in filmmaking. It was a lot of work, um, a lot of planning, uh, but then you have that moment where, you know, you get your first dailies of, you know, Jack Loudon in a plane for real, flying in formation with Spitfires, and you just think, wow, we actually managed to do that. We actually managed to get that done. And yeah. uh, there were a lot of moments, a lot of things like that on, on this film. Uh, the biggest one, I think, for me, being standing on the beach at Dunkirk on the anniversary of the real evacuation and seeing the real little ships who'd actually been there in 1940, seeing them come back to, to recreate their journey for us on that anniversary. Um, that was a really... A really remarkable thing to be a part of. It felt Do you very have a personal connection to Dunkirk at all? I wanted to ask you that. Like, is there something in your family that had anything to do with the evacuation? No, I mean, I had a, a great uncle who was um, evacuated uh, a couple of weeks after that, um, and and I had known of his experiences. But my connection with World War II is my grandfather was in the Royal Air Force and and died uh, a couple of years after that. Um, but like most, well, like all British people. It's a huge part of our culture. It's a, it's a history that everybody there knows. And we talk about the Dunkirk spirit, for example. You know, it's just uh, a very, very well-known part of British culture. Having said which, the, the version we grew up with is very, very simplified. Um, and finding out about the real history and, and sort of delving into that and really uh, looking at, at examining the reality of the events in 1940 your respect for what really happened is really enhanced, greatly magnified, even even over the kind of, if you like, the, the, the fairy tale version or, or whatever you'd call it. Yeah. Uh, going back to the imagery here, I think perhaps more than anything else you've made, I feel like this film has a notable silent cinema hallmark or debt mm. to it. Uh, I, you know, a lot of the movies you've made a number of them anyway, Prestige, Inception, Interstellar, deal in sort of heady narrative material yes. where you're sort of forced at some point to present exposition. Sure. With this movie, it, you could be a little more abstract. It seemed like you could have more fun, not, well, fun, but with, mm. with images and just letting them play over silence. I'm thinking about a man wading into the channel, presumably to his death as they watch from yeah. the shore, or 
even just like the cut to Hardy's Spitfire after he shoots the German plane down, the propellers stopped, and just just that cut over quiet yeah. just felt like a silent film moment in a way. Sure. I just wondered about that. I mean, I know you've talked in the past about you go back to silent cinema a lot to inform what you do. But I do, movie, but, well, it's interesting. As you, as I think about your question, I start to realize, that, and it's something I've noticed about editing, about other things, is, is I have always been influenced by silent cinema, but I think what I hadn't realized, in a sense, is the, the creative tyranny of, of dialogue and how that works. Because when you edit a film, when you shoot a film, a conventional film. Dialogue is everything. You, you base your entire day around how we covered this line on camera. Did we get that line? You get in the edit suite and you control the time and the intensity of the film entirely with dialogue as the backbone. And then the images kind of fill in around that. And so this is the first time where I really thought it's one thing to be influenced by silent cinema, but to actually remove the dialogue and try and tell significant parts of the story without it really opens up that side of cinema in a way that you can't do just just by being influenced by silent cinema. If right. you have in other words, dialogue tends to trump everything. Mm-hmm. And I've had complaints in the past on my films where I've mixed the dialogue as a sound effect. So you can't necessarily hear it with great clarity, but it's part of an overall, you know, feel of things. And that too is indicative of this idea that um modern cinema, modern Hollywood cinema uh, dialogue tends to be the spines sort of running down and defining everything. And I've been creatively very invigorated by removing that. And, mm. and it shifts everything in your process and, and how you deal with things. Um, and that immediately forces you, it, it forces you to not only find different solutions to things, but it also opens up some of those devices and solutions for the audience that when the dialogue isn't there, they're free to watch it in a slightly different way, just yeah. as we're free to make it in a slightly different way. It's kind of like that thing where if, you know, someone who's blind, maybe their other senses are more heightened. Yeah. So if you take away an element that you're used to in the cinema, it allows for you to really key into this other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, you tend to, as an audience member, you you cling to dialogue in the same way that as a writer, you'll cling to it to mm-hmm. just get something across that you can't figure out another way to, to communicate. Um, and I've done films in the past that have required a lot of heavy exposition because I've been dealing with complicated structures or complicated um, conceits. The wonderful thing about the story of Dunkirk to me is how simple it is. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly simple geography that you can explain and, and then you know deal with the situation. It really is a very primal kind of ticking clock surrounded on all sides, backs to the sea situation. It's yeah. very easy to get that across. So you don't have to spend a lot of time talking about it you can just experience it mm-hmm. absolutely you started to talk about mixing there i'd love to talk about the sonic quality of this film and not just the score which is amazing and as you say uh, builds on this idea of the shepherd mm. tone auditory illusion at a illusory sense of ascension but uh, i want to hear your philosophies on sound mixing uh in general because mm. uh yeah, as as you mentioned you know with with interstellar there were questions about what were you doing with sound what was the creativity behind it and something i find interesting and correct me if i'm wrong you don't do dolby atmos mixes i haven't yet no i i'm i quite like a tight sound coming off the screen um Which is so interesting. There, i'm sorry to jump no, in no, no, just fine. just you know when it comes to imagery you're very keen on 
the immersive experience. Yes. But as it pertains to enveloping an audience with sound or multiple channels, not so much. So well, gonna- it's more about using the sound to enhance the immersive quality of the image. Mm-hmm. And so the images are created in the screens that we try to project them on as significantly as possible, our prime uh, exhibition locations they're massive screens and the sound behind them can therefore be massive the problem with any kind of um surround sound and you know atmos is obviously the the newest and more sophisticated version of that but the sounds come off the screen and there are ways in which to draw the sounds off the screen that help with the immersive quality particularly with certain aspects of the music and things but there are a lot of times in which spot effects particularly, you know, a particularly sharp sound or a knock or something, if it's placed off the screen, it becomes a distraction mm-hmm. or it inherently tells you that the screen is smaller mm-hmm. than you want it to feel because the sound is bigger than the screen. And so it really depends on which frequencies you're, you're talking about. With low-end frequencies, they tend to not have specific imaging. Uh, which is why you can put your sub, you know, different places in your room and it won't make that much difference. Um, so with these low-end frequencies, you can do a lot in terms of immersing the audience. When it comes to higher-end spot frequencies, even in the music, you have to be very careful about the imaging. For me, the most powerful form is a very tight, powerful sound coming from behind the screen and reinforcing the images that you're actually seeing there yeah. on screen. And if you look at the the history of sound mixing and you look at every time there's been a new innovation, um, you know, six-track sound and 70 mil prints and then uh, surround sound, you know, these kind of things, um, there tends to be a very pronounced and, and obvious use of those technologies for the first couple of years that they're around. And then ultimately filmmakers tend to then sort of recede somewhat and let that let that more obvious or flashier use of it um, come back to something that's a little more behind the screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there are a lot of great sound mixing options at the moment. My particular favorite is uh, IMAX because it has a a filtered sub Mm -hmm. um, and that has a a really interesting set of low frequencies that, that you can you can play with and the relationship between the mains and the sub is really, really fascinating to play with. Um, Ultimately, I want the image to be primary and I want the power and the force of that image to be bolstered by the sound. And so sometimes wide imaging or very, very deep imaging fights that a bit. Yeah. I'm glad you touched on the IMAX mix because I've always wanted to ask you, this is such a sort of gearhead question, but, you know, is there anything problematic about the idea of the, the sub, the, the low-frequency information, not having a dedicated discrete channel and all kind of pumping through the other channels because to me as someone just as a listener and a viewer and with someone like you who can be creative with your sound usage stuff feels like it can get lost in that soup sometimes i think the reverse is true i think when you have a yeah when you have a filtered sub we have a derived sub pardon me um as you do an imax you get more of the low-end information contained in the mains as well and so there isn't this absolute cutoff between your sort of higher end information in the mains and then there's kind of down below. There's more of a sliding scale. There's more of a spectrum. Um, And I actually prefer it as a a sound and indeed the way we mix uh, for 35mm and for DCP and stuff, we actually 
somewhat take that philosophy over to that mix as well and try not to put stuff we we tend to for example we'll switch the subs off and listen to the mix sometimes and just check that we've got enough of the low-end information contained in the mains Mm -hmm. and that's a sort of important part of our process um there was a tendency when when five one first came out for the sub to be treated very very separately from the rest of the mix and i think that that is a less realistic type of sound um so what what that um derived sub allows you to do is have have a, a slightly more realistic spectrum down from the mains into the sub got it interesting well while i'm here and talking about immersive qualities uh let me ask you about virtual reality actually you've called dunkirk virtual reality without the headset so i know where your head's at you want to make movies that people feel like they're actually experiencing mm. uh but is this is the idea of the proscenium still a fixture for you in, in that light? I mean, is, is virtual well, reality something you would ever dabble in because of that? You know, I, mean, I would never say never, um, but there is a particular form, there's a particular medium uh, to what, what a motion picture is that has a, a very particular relationship with the audience. And one of the reasons I don't like 3D, for example, or stereoscopic imaging in in movies is it tends to shift your sense of empathy with the rest of the audience. So, I mean, to get technical about it, but it's like when you're wearing 3D glasses, your brain can't understand that the person, if you're at the back of the theater, it can't understand that the person in the front of the theater is seeing the same thing as you Mm -hmm. because the stereoscopic imaging is putting the image behind their, their head effectively. Um, it's one of the reasons why they don't tend to do comedies in 3D because the sense of audience empathy is so important. But I think it's important for any film. And so individual, a sense of individual and isolated immersion gives you a different empathetic relationship with the rest of the audience than a large-scale image that you share with the rest of the audience. So whatever I want to do in the future, and I would never say never, I'm interested in all types of, of cinema and all types of storytelling, but... I very much value a format or a medium like IMAX 2D that can give you a tremendous sense of subjective immersion without in any way compromising the empathetic relationship you have with the rest of the audience. Mm-hmm. There's something of a sweet spot there that I think is really, really powerful and important. Yeah. Did you happen to check out the Carnegie Arena? The I, I haven't had thing? a chance to yet, but um, people in the academy were telling me I've got to got to go have a look. So I'm gonna. It's interesting. I mean, yeah. I, it's it's interesting to see like what you'll do in the moment because for me, I just kind of stood back and forced a proscenium. Like I wanted right. to just observe. I'd like to go back because maybe I could be more participatory about it. But just right. that first instinct was let me just stand back and make a movie out of this yeah. and watch it yeah. unfold. And just a different thing. Well, I'll be interested to see. Uh, you, just a couple last things here. I, I don't know if you've ever made it out of an interview without someone bringing up Batman. But I had Christian <laughs> Bale on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, I had Gary Oldman on the show. We've had a bit of a Batman reunion. And Christian, one of the things that he and I talked about, which was interesting was, uh, you know, he's such a private person, and just the idea of tackling those movies as a bit of a mixed blessing. You know, it opened a ton of doors, but it also Mm -hmm. kind of exposed him a little bit. And I've always been curious, given that you're someone who's so guarded about what you're making and how you're making it, yet those movies were about the most popular pop cultural figure in many ways. Uh, Do you feel similarly to Christian that it was a bit of a mixed blessing, that it kind of 
exposed because now fans are just desperate to know exactly what you're doing. You know, what are you making? What is the script? All of this stuff. So, no, I think it's very different if you're behind the camera than if you're yeah. in front of the camera. Um, you're not you're not dealing with that that um, loss of anonymity, if you like. That, that for an actor, a serious actor like Christian, is so important actually yeah. to his process to be amongst people and absorbing what people do. Um, for a filmmaker, it's very different. And your biggest struggle as an independent filmmaker uh, is getting an audience, uh, just getting your work seen and knowing that it's getting out there. And so um, success on the scale that we had with, with the Dark Knight trilogy uh, is just a massive advantage to me. And it's one of the reasons why I'm able to take on a British story like Dunkirk that wouldn't be a traditional fit for a studio summer tentpole release. Right. Um, and and get that done and get that scene and, and have people be interested in it. So for a filmmaker, it's really all about about eyeballs in a sense about yeah. about anything that can get you attention. And so people being interested in what I do, um, I, w- I would never begrudge that. That's a that's a fantastic privilege to have. For sure. but it's very different for a director than it is for a, for an actor. Yeah. And then just to wrap it up uh, with Dunkirk here, is there, you know. It's obviously a timeless theme, what's going on with Dunkirk. It's about pulling together in the face of insurmountable mm. odds and uh, you know surviving the torrent, essentially. Just curious, is there anything about that story of Dunkirk that particularly resonates in the modern climate for you? I think for me, the, the resonance I find... I mean, it wasn't really something I was self-conscious about in making the film, but when we finished the film, we put it out. It, it's really a question of what does... The Dunkirk spirit mean and what it means to me is the possibilities of what can be achieved when people pull together as opposed to what we can achieve individually and I think that movies traditionally have celebrated individuality and individual acts of heroism I think that's something that's fit the narrative paradigm of, of, of movies and so a lot of what we've done editorially photographically you know all these things we've been talking about they're, they're all aimed at trying to draw the audience into a different type of heroism, a communal heroism. And I think we live in times that possibly overvalue, uh, you know, individual achievement at the expense of what we can do, you know, together. So I think, I think for me, that's, that's the relevance uh, of, of Dunkirk. And I think it's the reason that the, the story itself will always be this incredible shining example of what society can achieve working together. Well, well put. Uh, the movie's called Dunkirk. You should see it if you haven't, uh, hopefully on the biggest screen possible. I think Mr. Nolan would prefer. Absolutely. And uh, good luck at the BAFTA Awards this weekend. It's thank you. certainly a source of pride over there. So uh, hopefully you have good luck there. And thank you again for doing my show. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks very much. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. The call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. 
I'll be useful, sir. What about? He's on me. I'm on him. Sailors, not the bloody navy. You should be at home. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Turn it around. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. Where's the bloody airport? 